Hi there and welcome to Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. In this episode, I catch up with Dr. Avril Cook to discuss political psychology and ways of applying systemic therapeutic approaches. I hope you're going well and have settled in with a warm cup of tea. Hey there, Avril. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Jasmine. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm excited to have a chat. I'm wondering to start with, though, what are your plans for the weekend? You and your family still in lockdown? <sighs> yes, yes. Oh my gosh. What will I be think... happening in your household? <laughs> be a whole lot of exciting things like going for wholesome walks for a maximum of one hour. Um, hmm. <laughs> Probably listening to my own podcast as a way to kill the time, playing with my yeah. dog. Yeah. Nice. What do you listen yes. to? Oh, well, uh, the last one I just was listening to was I'm Not a Monster. If you haven't listened to it, you must listen to it. It is Ooh. so good. So good. What is it's, it? Um, well, it's about this woman, this US-born um, citizen who married this guy and then ended up in Syria with her children and she was trying to come back to the US saying that she had been tricked into going there. She was ended up being, the, her husband ended up becoming an ISIS fighter. And it's like unpacking what actually happened and the psychology behind what she did and why she did this. And it's incredible. Oh, that sounds really Definitely interesting. Watch. Okay, yeah. I'm going to add that to the list. <clears throat> yes, um, really good. <laughs> I've been listening to I Spy, which is okay. all of these kind of counterintelligence stories Ooh, uh, from around the world. Yeah, that one's really cool I as spy. well. Okay, yeah. I always like having Look a collection this. of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Recording a podcast episode and sharing. Yes, uh, yes. Different tips. I love this. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to crowdsource your, your uh, the next thing to listen to. You don't have to do your own yeah, research that way. Yep, and you don't have to weed through the, the crappy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, All righty, so we're here today to have a chat about the various kinds of work that you do in the area of political psychology and systemic therapeutic approaches. But a lovely place to start would be for you to tell the listeners about yourself, your background, and kind of how you came into psychology. Yeah, um, I identify in so many different ways. And I, I remember saying to you just earlier, I don't know how to identify myself in this podcast. And you encouraged me to just say all the parts of me. So I will have a go at doing that. I'm a clinical psychologist. So I have been practicing for a number of years as a therapist, as a clinician, someone who works with adults, with families, with teenagers in, in a variety of settings. Um, and then in my later years of work, I've also moved a little more into the research realm and um, moved into academia where I have been doing a lot more of the supervision of an upcoming psychologist and teaching the program and organising the program in the master's format. So I've been doing that a lot recently. And then on the side, I, I do little projects like training workshops in areas I'm interested in so particularly things like family therapy and trauma and working with complex cases and I also supervise uh, sorry I provide supervisor training to people who want to become accredited supervisors for psychs 
So that's some of the things that I do. And I obviously do a lot of research as well in those areas that I'm interested in exploring more about and understanding. And so through various projects um, and relationships, I've, I've come to be able to explore through research to be able to unpack a little more around those topics that I'm interested in. Yeah, I feel like every time I talk to you, I learn something new about what you're working on and how you're... <laughs> Um, you know, and doing these really interesting things. And I think that was a nice uh, tip of the iceberg of the aspects mm. of Avril. So thank you for that. <laughs> Could we go back a little even before that? What brought mm. you to psychology? Ah, such a good question. I actually originally wanted to be a journalist. Um, and I think ah, the things that... Tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that the things that that made me interested in journalism originally is also what made me interested in psychology. I guess finding out the exploration, the discovery of what might be happening either with an individual or a situation or a story and exploring that. I was always interested in more the investigative journalism side of things. And I guess I actually wrote in my local paper and realised that journalism was not for me because I wasn't interested in reporting the local soccer matches of the under-15s. <laughs> and I went, hmm, I might need to do this for quite some time before I get to do the 7.30 report. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I guess that led me to psychology where I was able to, from the get-go, get into the juicy issues, the juicy topics. So I was always very interested in, I guess, the political issues and issues that face me as an individual and, and and understanding maybe some of the principles of why people do what they do and why groups do what they do and um, mm. I guess that's what led me into the study of psychology. I was recently on I think Facebook or something mm. and a friend of mine posted this generic post that was like what did you want to be when you were younger and I just mm -hmm. replied April you know, April from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm pretty sure that's where my interest in journalism came from. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So. Um, yes. Well, mine was Penny from Inspector Gadget. You remember also Penny? loved Penny. <gasps> also yes. loved Penny. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Now I just want to hit pause and go be nostalgic and watch, watch a bunch of cartoons and yes. cereal. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. And watch my reruns. <laughs> Um, so I had to share that love for April, even though you gave me a beautiful segue into what I was wondering next, which is when you say, you know, this interest that you have in political psychology, mm. what is that? You know, say you're at a barbecue or a picnic or something, and you're trying to explain to someone who might not really have a background in social science or psychology, how would you describe mm. political psychology? Oh, I think that I would probably not necessarily have a de definition that may exist out there, but I guess the way I would describe it from my perspective is how to get involved and be socially aware of the issues that are facing people, um, particularly for me in the current times or um, affects me as an individual or the groups that I work with a lot. So, you know, some examples are how are we affected as women in this society? Um, how do we, how are we affected as people from culturally diverse backgrounds, whatever they may be? I myself am half Chinese and I have different aspects in my, in my background and um, exploring those and also understanding how that intersects with being a professional in a very westernized society that really values whiteness and western culture so 
it's sort of how how those types of issues um, intersect with how we understand people and their behaviour and how we have relationships with one another and why we do what we do. So I guess it's got a bit more of a political lens. It's got a bit more of a socially cultural um, awareness to it um, than, say, perhaps traditional psychology, which is because it is very westernised, it's very individually focused. Yeah, and those looking for commonalities across an individual's experience, yeah, at an individual level rather than thinking mm. more broadly. It's not just social psych, though. Like, it's not, yeah. this is not the same as that. It's that systemic influences on the way mm-hmm. people experience their lives. So, exactly. yeah, your um, broader approach is systemic therapeutic approach. And mm-hmm. what does that look like? It's um it's kind of a cool concept because you're right it does it does step outside of just psychology um as a as a discipline it's it's something that governs behavior and groups and you can have a system in the ecosystem and it's got similar principles to it as it applies to a group of people and uh, a system say for example a company or an organization is a system a family is a system, the environment and how it intersects with, with how parts of it work with it within one another is also a system, like an ecosystem. So I guess it's understanding the principles of how systems work, how they tend to operate, and what can happen when we move and tweak one aspect of that system. What are the ripple effects or what are the, what are the patterns in which this can um, influence other aspects of the system? So I guess um, no matter what we're looking at, we do have general principles that govern all of these systems. And then there's the more minute uh, study of particular systems like a family unit or a society or a cultural group or a business organisation. And that's what I'm thinking about when I think about a system. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really nice kind of clear description. I always in my own work am thinking about even when studying the individual level of symptoms in in trauma and occupational stress Mm. in terms of the conclusions and recommendations, trying to think at that micro meso macro level. And that's a little gem that I have always taken from my social work training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That sounds like this is coming very natural to exactly what you're talking about here. Exactly. Yes. And then you're right in saying that this is a far stronger tradition in social work than it is in psychology. Uh, So you do get taught about these um, concepts at a very fundamental educational level, which psychologists don't, but it is something I guess that I'm quite passionate about bringing to psychology and bringing as a lens and one other aspect of understanding people and behaviour and relationships. So in taking this approach to your practice and the way that you teach and supervise and your research, what are the key assumptions that you're challenging? I would say that it affects almost every single aspect of the work we do as psychologists. There isn't one area that it doesn't touch. And I think that's why I have been so uh, passionate about bringing these ideas and these influences to psychology in the way that it has already been a tradition in social work for a long time, because it is so fundamental to the work that we do. And I guess um, particularly because psychology has been more conservative than uh, social work, we do have a very individual westernized concept that hasn't been influenced by other cultures it hasn't been influenced by other research from different different areas um uh, either culturally or conceptually in in the 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 study of psychology and so uh, I guess I guess what I 
the way that I view it is that psychology has had such a tunnel vision in looking at the individual and their intrapsychic world that they've failed to really acknowledge our environment and nobody exists in a vacuum and that is so important to understanding what happens for individuals and how we can understand and I guess help and support people is not just through intrapsychic means and what happens inside their head or their bodies or their heart on their own but how they're connected fundamentally with other human beings because as human beings we're social creatures and I think if we can understand this and we can we have can have a really well-tuned understanding of how the individual operates within their context and how the context influences the individual you've got a much more thorough and um, complete picture of a complex situation than if you're just looking at the individual so I would say that if it affects everything in psychology all right we've got a sense of what kind of constitutes political psychology and what a systemic therapeutic approach is what does that look like share with us some of the things that you've worked on Um, Okay. As some examples. Some of the work I have done is, for instance, done the occasional pro bono job for an NGO working with refugees. I I have in the past worked with refugees internationally with people who have been political prisoners or caught in detention in Australia and needing sort of psychological reports. Some projects for Anti-Slavery Australia where I've met people who have been enslaved in Australia and and have done reports for them in aid of whatever they're, they're needing at that particular time. That's systemic because it's doing what I believe in and it is doing the work in an area that may not have funding or money or where people are disadvantaged and not able to access these services easily. And then I've been involved in more more of a structural sense in the organisations I've been involved with. So in my work at ACAP, um, the Australian College of Applied Psychology, I've been very vocal in bringing cultural diversity and decolonising the practice of psychology to the studies through our reworking of the master's training programs, through the lectures that I deliver in those psychology programs, as well as, um, I guess, uh, doing those sorts of guest lectures for the undergrad program as well. And in doing that, what I am trying to do is actually ensure that the next generation of psychologists doesn't have this attitude of, I do my real work, and then maybe there's sometimes this work that I have to do a bit differently for someone who is from a different cultural background. And I don't actually really know how to do that, or I don't actually know how it relates. I chuckle because it makes me think of psychology textbooks where here's the main theory and research, or here's a chapter about working in a culturally diverse context or working with um, Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander Australians instead of having that more integrated. uh, Because the key risk here is when you don't be more mindful of the colonise aspects or the the, mm. the white middle upper class aspects of psychology and taking those for granted is really damaging. Yes, absolutely. And I know when I went through my training, it was, you know, Indigenous, an Indigenous perspective was literally a lecture tagged onto the end of some random subject. And that was the entirety of our, our teaching and our knowledge and our understanding of working with Indigenous clients. And so... Through, I mean, I guess I'm talking about a few parallels here is like I'm creating systemic change in actually imbuing our philosophy and our attitude towards psychology by providing students with a lens that this, the tradition and the history of psychology is very white. It is very male, middle class mm-hmm. focused. And we need oh, to yeah, be I left critical. Male out. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
I, I mean, in one of my lectures, I literally Googled famous psychologists and then I took a screenshot of the pictures that came up and they were all white male and usually like in their 50s or 60s bearded (laughs) bearded yes yeah yeah and and this is what psychology is and this is the product of these people and it probably only relates to them and their cultures and so for us as psychologists we need to be critical about that and we need to understand where it applies and where it does not apply um and what we do instead when it doesn't apply So, for instance, you know, a a very common example is that obviously CBT is very well understood, it's very well researched, it is considered the gold standard for, you know, lots of different disorders. Let's just take depression as a very common example. But the research that's conducted, the the RCT trials that are done in these areas are really about very simple types of individuals with simple types of problems. So because of the way research is constructed, We cannot have an individual who has depression, who also has trauma, who is suicidal, who is, you know, complex because you can't isolate exactly specifically whether this treatment works then for depression. Then as a result, what we get is a treatment that works purely for depression, but perhaps fits almost nobody that's going to walk through your door. (laughs) So (laughs) so then when you you have cultures that have not even had these um, measures or these therapeutic approaches tested on them or based around anything that makes sense to them as human beings and and their cultures we are taking a huge leap of faith and we can't actually assume to know that these treatments work for example for indigenous populations so I think that's what I'm really trying to bring to psychologists of the current generation is having this this ability to be critical about what psychology tells us is true Um, And to use their own minds as we do develop more research and do develop more practices that may be tailored from, you know, from particular cultural groups that say, hey, this is a treatment that actually might be really useful for my community, rather than it being driven by white uh, privileged people who are often take up the bulk of psychology, um, the psychology workforce. So that's something that I'm doing um, in a university level. And then there's sort of little projects that I have been doing um, as well, uh, which are in line with, I guess, my systemic unpacking of injustice and issues that are facing people today. Within the history of uh, recent history of Black Lives Matter, there's been a lot of conversation, particularly in Australia, more so than we've ever had before around these issues of how we treat non-white community members. In Australia, it's not just black people, it's Indigenous, it's Muslim, it's Chinese, many many different cultural groups. In the wake of Black Lives Matter, there was I, I was contacted by a higher ed organisation who were having a lot of difficulties with their student population and the backlash that they were receiving for being a very white and the criticism was racist organisation and how to deal with that and and that's something that I am very passionate about as well is helping organizations which maybe have a lot of history in colonial white Australia to break down those systemic barriers to having diversity in their student cohort in their staffing cohort in their policies in their practices Mm. which um, I guess is only now something that Australia is really taking a good look at to see how it affects and discriminates against certain parts of the population. 
and how it hurts a big part of our population. So in doing my work with that organisation, what I was looking at was understanding the experiences of the Indigenous and culturally diverse students in the community, the staff, but also looking at the perspectives of the white students and the staff members who were from the dominant group and and how they understood the situation that was unfolding. And we had a look at um, policies and practices within that organisation, such as how do you have communications with your students? How do you have involvement around different areas of concern for your different cultural groups? How do you enforce your policies? So, for example, sick, sick leave or extensions, what is your perspective on when that's allowed and when that's not allowed? Um, right. Are you enforcing dis- your anti-discrimination laws that we're all governed by or are you not? So all at all these levels really unpacking where it was going wrong and providing suggestions to uh, increase the cultural diversity and strength of the organisation. That actually sounds like a massive undertaking. <laughs> so worthwhile and so interesting, yeah. but it sounds massive. It was massive. I did not do it alone. I did it with my my colleague C Liu as well, who is a um, an amazing psychologist and someone who also very very passionate around this type of work. And it was a big project. It was it was very interesting. It was very exciting. And um, I hope we get to do some more of it down the track. Broadly, I'm wondering about the potential resistance that you might get when you're addressing such important but systemic issues. You may or may not want to speak to how you presented those findings to that educational institution, but broadly, is this something that you're thinking about when you're meeting with people and giving feedback on these kind of projects is how do we feedback what might be really challenging for people to hear, but they really need to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, it's, it is all about the delivery and it's all about pitching uh, your communication appropriately at your audience. There's different schools of thought about how to do this, but um, what C and I did together was very carefully thought about the groups that we were speaking to. So we deliberately chose to meet the students who are Indigenous and, and from culturally diverse backgrounds uh, separately. We chose to speak to different groups depending on what uh, kind of information and the level of sensitivity of the information that we needed to obtain because there is the potential for a lot of harm and violence to be done through people's um, imbued and casual racism that, that's maybe not intentioned but because we've all been raised in this in this environment where racism is just in the air we breathe it can take a lot of unpacking. I, I daily have to unpack my own racism. Um, and that may sound really surprising from someone who comes from also very mixed um, racial background, but it, it affects all of us. And so there is a real need to almost have a trauma-informed um, kind of practice when you are having these conversations to ensure that you're protecting the people who are bringing up or maybe required to bring up a lot of very distressing information and to also have an environment where people who may not have ever experienced this or ever had to think about this can query and question and ask openly without having to be anxious that they might upset someone or or might be saying something insensitive. So I guess there's the needs, very different needs, and you do have to be very mindful of that. The other thing when you're doing this is that you have to have the people in leadership alongside with you. There is very little that you can actually do to create change if you don't have the willingness and the conviction of people in in leadership. 
so these conversations are still important to be had, but you're not going to be able to make very structural systemic changes without that. Um, in this instance, we were very fortunate to have that from um, the board, from the CEO, and it was directed and pushed from them. So it's a matter of, you know, providing ongoing education to them and, you know, articles, um, resourcing. There is a lot of resourcing out there around how organisations can increase their cultural diversity, how they can decolonize their policies and their practices. So going to industry-specific guidance on that. As a consultant in that space, it's about understanding that everyone is actually coming from a different starting point and you need to be able to join them at wherever, they, wherever they're at in their journey. It is going to be a place where you are going to be met with a lot of um, uh, differences of opinions and attitudes that may be really different to your own and, and sort of being able to kind of sit with that and gently challenge that um, on one hand. And then on the other hand, if you do have the power to actually still create that change despite those attitudes being present. So for instance, there are going to be some people who do want to learn and come along for the journey, who may struggle, who may have to think things through and reflect. And there are going to be other people who who really don't want to budge or shift their position and I guess as an organisation or, or, you know, a group of people, you have to decide what you stand for at the end. And any kind of learning and changing of perspective is, in, is actually uncomfortable. I found Very. this through teaching psychology is you can have people who are really motivated and keen to learn and develop and change in general mm. until something that really shakes the perspectives that they have yeah. comes along. And then there's... <laughs> resistance and distress and depending on the personality you know all these different potential kind of reactions yes I think what's really important to note here as well is I mean I'm again referring to systemic understanding is we might be having this conversation with a particular group maybe a psychology tutorial group that's in front of you an organization that has come to, to, to address these issues or you're doing a lecture and those people all sit within a context and the context is our society in Sydney at the moment for instance or in Australia and I think part of the conversation is preempting where they will be at because of where Australia is up to and Australia is very young in this conversation. South Africa for instance have been dealing with these issues for such a long time and their thinking and their their social psyche is far more developed and complex in understanding these issues because they've had to whereas we haven't Australia has really never had the Black Lives Matter moment we've we've tried to we've we've had that opening but it hasn't been as huge as some of the other countries um, like the US and South Africa historically so preempting these conversations with we have never had to think about this um, in a big way in Australia Indigenous people think about it daily, experience it daily. People from migrant communities also think about it and and experience it daily. But as a community, it has not been within our narrative. And so we're very young in our understanding. And this is the context in which our audience is largely going to be sitting in, is they've a lot of white people have never had to think about this. So by acknowledging that straight up front and preempting their resistance, that can also be helpful in in them taking a step back and saying, this might be why I'm experiencing resistance. And that's okay. And it's still my responsibility to learn. And it's still my responsibility to reflect. Mm. Many people haven't had an experience of even being referred to by a racial category. I remember Mm. going to Singapore 
and getting in an Uber. And the driver was talking to us and he said, oh, you know, um, I was doing this and it was with Caucasians like you. Mm. And I remember like reflecting and going, hey, I don't know if I've ever been referred to or categorized in that way. And as you say, other people experience this all the time. Mm. Um, And even that experience, like that's that's nothing. That's not Mm. even something. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's almost worth noting but it was that for me was a really interesting experience to go yeah when you have an experience where you're not in the majority or the mainstream mm-hmm. and and categorized in some way it makes you yeah. think about yourself differently absolutely like that was that's an example of you being othered you were considered other and how surprising that is when you haven't had that experience before Absolutely. I mean, I was having this conversation. I had had one of these lectures with my postgrad uh, students and there was a, quite a diverse group there. And because psychology is so white, a lot of these people in my class had said to me, I have never had to think about this within the context of me being a psychologist in this way. So what happens to people from uh, different cultures when they come into the profession of psychology And they have to be white in order to practice as a psychologist and to think as a psychologist. And now I'm hoping, I'm hoping to have conversations with with these students as well about what do you bring from your cultural understanding and how do you think about things from your cultural lens and how can that intersect with what we know in psychology and what we don't know. And so even just having these conversations, like for white students, they said, I've never thought about culture and how this affects me as a therapist. For people with, from different backgrounds saying, this affects me daily, but I've never had to think about it in terms of me as a professional, shows how divorced these two issues have been in psychology for a long time. Yeah, definitely. I remember having a chat with a third year psych student and they were talking about what they were going to go on and do and what their aspirations were after honours and going into a master's program. And this student was saying to me, I, I want to work with clients who have PTSD and depressive symptoms. Um, but she was explaining to me that she would need to work with Malaysian clients because that was her background. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a desire to work within her community. Mm-hmm. It was like an assumption that she'd absorbed almost through her yeah. training that because yeah. she was um, a Malaysian student, that's where she would be, be best fit. Yeah that's really concerning, you know, like, and I, I wonder if, you know, when you're talking about this being like a young area in Australia Mm. and, and within the discipline, I think sometimes when things are young and a new thing, we go straight to what are the challenges and the issues and problematize things. Mm. Mm. So, you know, the layering of disadvantage to be black, to be a woman, all these different things, but it's always from to start with a negative perspective instead of seeing the strength in this perspective you know Mm -hmm. what is it that indigenous australians do so well that can inform psychological practice so what is it about this culture that is so adaptive or resilient it kind of feels like that's where we're at Mm -hmm. yeah and i think in a way that's because the narrative is largely driven by the dominant culture and the dominant culture's assumptions and heuristic is other is less than and disadvantage and that is a patriarchal message it's we are the caregivers we are the knowledge holders and we will share this with the poor you know groups that don't that have less than us 
Um, and that is an inherently racist assumption because I think if you were to approach you know, particular, say, an Indigenous group, they would have a very different perspective on what it is that they bring and what it is that their culture gives them that the dominant culture would not have an awareness of. What are some well-earned tips or experiences you can share for people to be keeping this in mind when they're in a classroom or when they're working with a client or when you're doing research? I might talk a bit about the therapeutic side of things because I don't think I've, I've spent as much time talking about that. And I think that was my first, that was my first home. That was my first passion area. And I, I do a bit of, I still do a bit of teaching in, in family therapy and systemic therapy. And I guess what the way that this comes into the therapy room is through understanding the person who has come to see you with problems, issues, concerns, and understanding them within their context. Now, unfortunately, because we do come from a very Western medical model perspective, it will be one individual that is coming to you because of our referral systems, because of our how we understand patients and how we categorise and channel people through a health health system is very much identified or based around you are the sick person, we will give treatment to you as a sick person. So whilst a patient is coming to you or a client is coming to you as an individual, understanding that it may not be actually them that needs the treatment. It may not be them that has the entire solution within them or is the cause of the issues that they're facing. And so therefore they may not within, within themselves have the ability to actually change everything about the issues that they're facing. Mm. If you have that perspective, then you start to naturally think through, well, who are those people? Who are those key relationships? Um, who are those key communities and how can I access them and how can I actually bring them into the therapy room in a way that you may not have if you're thinking that the entire solution lies within the individual in front of me. So I think probably some of the most complex, complex cases I have ever worked on in my entire career has always involved more than just one person in the room. And usually the most complex cases involve the entire family. It'll involve entire systems, so the police system, you know, facts or, or um, now known as um, DCJs, it may involve communities and community members because this is their support structure and this is the structure that influences and teaches and holds and holds to account the people you're working with. So in those really complex cases, those people are so important to utilise and to to bring their knowledge of the situation and their um, influences into the room. On a really, I guess, uh, less complex end, it may simply mean if you're seeing an adult, asking them who the people are in their lives, who are their support structures, who are the, you know, what are their social networks like, what are their work, employment, study networks like. We know that people who suffer the most are those that don't have good social connections. They might be migrants or they might be uh, international students or they may have just moved interstate to, to pick up a new job. They might be isolated by their identity, like, you know, their LGBTQI plus, and they're not accepted within the place that they've moved or they haven't found their people yet. You need to know about these things in order to be able to help the individual in front of you. And you need to know how to help 
um, your client access those and value those things in order to aid them in their own support and recovery. So I suppose that would be sort of the first thing I'd say about therapy is bringing other people into the room, bringing other people either conceptually or physically into the therapy room in front of you. Mm. When you've got children, that's also going to mean schools. And I mean very actively including schools in your strategies for helping the family. Um, Your implementation, your gathering of information has to come from all these different sources. What's next for you? Like what projects are you working on or things that people could keep an eye out on or that, you know, they should know about? I think one of the things that I've got coming up is uh, my business um, where I'm wanting to work with different organisations and different key people to actually keep doing projects in the various areas I am passionate about. So in terms of teaching and education, I am going to be doing a decolonizing psychology workshop, which I've had a bit of interest in um, from clinicians. So that will be coming out shortly. It'll be coming out via my page, which will be uh, www.bodhiandpsychology.com.au and Bodhi is B-O-D-H-I. I will be working on some more projects in that field, uh, taking that to organisations as well, uh, working with a great um, org psychologist called Associate Professor Madeleine Geldenhus, and she's going to kill me for that pronunciation because it is a very poor <laughs> pronunciation of an Afrikaans name. Um, and she also works in this field as well. I do have a number of exciting research projects which I'm quite passionate about. And again, bringing my my values and social justice kind of lens to it. One I'm working on with Southwestern Sydney LHD, um, and we're looking at the effects of climate change on mental health, and in particular the effects mm. of heatwave events on populations in the southwest of Sydney, and whether or not um, people turn up to emergency departments with psychological distress. I guess this is another way that I sort of bringing together my systemic understanding and, and, and interests is uh, this is one of the biggest crises of our time and I don't know that psychology has really paid much attention to how this will affect people and their mental health and um, we're wanting to have a look, I guess, compare heatwave event periods to non-heatwave event periods and in particular to look at those from marginalised populations, so Indigenous cold communities, and whether or not it affects those communities to a greater extent than wealthier, more privileged communities. So that's actually going through through ethics at the moment and um, I have a few students from ACAP joining me in on that, which will be exciting and should be able to get a fair bit of data hopefully over the next few years that we can kind of ask a few more interesting questions around. Mm, I mean, you can't get much more person in context than considering climate change and the environment and how that's impacting people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the other projects that I'm also working on is looking, um, is working with Western, no, not Western, um, Southeastern Sydney LHD. And we're looking at a project which helps divert mental health populations that may have ended up in emergency departments by the development of a team called the PACER team. And the PACER team consists of sort of a mental health clinician alongside emergency services like police, ambulance. And the idea is that as a mobile team, they go out to people's homes or they go out to the streets and out to the community when people may be acutely distressed or unwell and actually assess and triage and evaluate people in distress in the community rather than people by and large would be scheduled, taken to hospital or traumatic experiences assessed in an emergency department. Emergency department is already overloaded and clogged and it's a really non 
uh, trauma-informed environment and uh, quite a distressing experience. And by and large, those mental health patients are assessed and um, taken back into the community with with no extra benefit for having gone through that process. So we're wanting to have a look on how these teams are impacting the types of patients' journeys. So are they able to stay in their communities? Are they able to get linked up with the more appropriate services? Are they having a better experience because they are having a mental health clinician at their first point of contact? And is this also then influencing our emergency services and, and helping them feel more supported in mental health presentations? That's a pretty exciting project as well, just trying to see how, as a system, we can actually better treat our mental health consumers. Mm, demonstrating a shift in typical approach from the mental health professional, the police officer, the various systems that an individual might come into contact with rather than expecting the individual to shift. Yes, exactly. So when those projects wrap up, we'll do more episodes <laughs> to hear Excellent. all about what you I found. I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so, yeah, just hopefully a lot of exciting different ideas coming up through the company and, and picking up projects as they as they come through and working with different exciting people whose passion areas, you know, Madeleine's is, is org psych and we're going to do some in that um, area. I'll probably do some more things in, in looking at supervision as well for psychologists down the track and giving them a lot more support and structure than they currently have. But, uh, yeah, watch this space and... Hopefully we'll get to have a chat again sometime soon. I would very much enjoy that. I've really enjoyed catching up with you today and I feel like we have covered a lot of ground mm. and that goes back to exactly what you were saying at the start. It's not a specific context or a specific issue that we need to apply these things in. It's really, it is across the board and something kind of omnipresent, mm. whether we acknowledge it or yeah. not. So um, it's super awesome conversation Avril thank you so much thank you so much thanks for having me and um, I really enjoyed the conversation too some great questions there for those of you at home that's all for today show notes for the episode can be found at www.psychattack.com if you've enjoyed listening to Psych Attack, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode to help other people find the show if you have questions or feedback you can reach out on twitter at psychattackcast Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you again next time.